There are nearly 280,000 unsolved murders across the United States. This constitutes a national crisis, and our country has hundreds of thousands of victims' family members who have no answers and no justice for their loved one. Using advances in technology, crowdsourcing, and good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground investigative work, follow American Military University's Cold Case Investigative Team as we work to break the case again for one of these families. My name is Jen Buchholz. I'm a forensics and criminal justice professor at American Military University, an Army veteran, and a criminal investigator for my local sheriff's department. I'm George Jared. I'm an investigative journalist and award-winning true crime author. Together, George and I are the lead investigators for AMU's Cold Case Investigative Team. This season, we're working to break the case for the family of Linda Malcolm. In every investigation, we work closely with family members to learn about their loved one. It's a heart-wrenching process for any family member of a murder victim. We have found it's even more so for those whose loved one's case has turned cold. Furthermore, it's always incredibly frustrating to hear about the family member's experience with law enforcement through the years. George and I have never walked in the shoes of having a relative murdered. We wanted to talk to someone who could provide more insight about what it's like to be the family member of a victim whose case is unsolved. We were honored to talk to Bill Thomas, who is well known for his victim advocacy and contributions to the field of cold cases. For the last 36 plus years, Bill and his family have pushed to have more law enforcement resources and hours dedicated to solving his sister's homicide case. He provided us with exceptional insight into what family members must do to best advocate for their loved one so their cases aren't forgotten. Hey everyone, it's Jen here at Break the Case, and George and I are back today with an extremely special guest, Bill Thomas. Bill, can you give our listeners a little introduction about yourself? Well, thank you, and I appreciate being called special, although usually it's having to do with my mental capacity. <laughs> my name is Bill Thomas, and I'm the brother of Kathy Thomas, who together with her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, were the first two victims in the so-called Colonial Parkway murders in Virginia. And together with my podcast partner, Kristen Dilley, I run a true crime podcast called Mind Over Murder. And as a matter of fact, today we went over 1 million downloads. I had that in my notes to mention because I saw your post and I wanted to <laughs> congratulate you guys. That is really quite the milestone. Well, thank you. Yes, you should be proud. Thank you. We are very proud. And I really appreciate your having me on here to have a conversation. Really excited to talk with you today. I have a little anecdote <laughs> about you and your sister in the Colonial Parkway murders. I think it was six years ago, I tore my Achilles tendon, so I was totally laid up. I couldn't drive, I couldn't walk, I couldn't go anywhere. And my friend goes, you should check out this podcast. And I'd heard a podcast, but I had never listened to one. And I'm like, eh, you know, it sounds kind of boring. But my friend recommended Real Crime Profile with Jim Clemente, and George knows them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know Jim and Laura, and yeah. George presented with Jim last year at CrimeCon. Very cool. Yep. And I started listening, and I was hooked. But that is where I learned about the Colonial Parkway murders. I had not heard about this series of homicides before hearing their analysis on the podcast. Yeah. So then when George and I presented in CrimeCon a couple of years ago, you had a session and it totally caught my eye. And I remember attending and listening to your journey that you've gone through all these years with your sister's case still being unsolved. And something that I'll always remember about your presentation 
and ours is we both used the same statistic, which was 250,000 unsolved homicides in our country. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think you called it a national crisis in your presentation, which it is. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, that number grows every year. Now we're around 280. Right. So, anyways, that's just my first memory of this case and you and your journey. And, by the way, I love your podcast, too. I hold Jim and Laura in such high regard. And together with Lisa, they have just done an incredible job with Real Crime Profile. And they've gotten to be good friends of ours. And of course, Jim co-produced a television series on the Colonial Parkway murders called the Lover's Lane Murders Mm -hmm. for the Oxygen Network. And boy, it seems like a long time ago. It probably was six years ago. I was fascinated with just hearing your experiences, which we're going to talk about, and then, of course, Jim's analysis from the criminal profiling perspective, which is just an aspect of investigations that I love. (laughs) So I always love hearing him break down and talk about what the killer may have been thinking and what certain actions indicate and stuff like that. I just love it. Yeah, me too. And I could just listen to the three of them talk all day Yes, because they're all so smart and they all have great really interesting backgrounds. So Kristen and I feel like it's a privilege to co-host a podcast like Mind Over Murder because it allows us to talk to really smart people. Absolutely. And listen to them and learn from them. Yes. So for those who aren't familiar with your sister's homicide and the others, would you mind just giving a brief overview? Oh, sure. Of the cases? So with the Colonial Parkway murders, what we're talking about are a series of four Couples homicide. So that's eight young people, four couples, approximately one couple each year from 1986 to 1989. And these cases took place in and around Williamsburg, Virginia. And the name comes from a road there, which is actually a national park called the Colonial Parkway. And it's a 23 mile long ribbon of land that connects. Historic sites, Jamestown, Yorktown, and Colonial Williamsburg. And the name is actually a bit of an artifice because only two of the four incidents actually happened on the Colonial Parkway. And then two of them happened about a half an hour in either direction off the Colonial Parkway. So if you use Williamsburg, Virginia as kind of a center point, two of the murders happened on the Colonial Parkway, as far as we can tell. And they are FBI cases, because if you are murdered in a national park, that automatically becomes an FBI case. The other two cases that happened off of the parkway are both handled by Virginia State Police investigators. And then just to make things a little more complicated, they're handled by separate Virginia State Police offices. And this is in the 1986 to 1989 time frame. I tend to be pretty direct and I will be here. The agencies did not get along very well. There was a lot of friction behind the scenes. The information sharing wasn't very good. And they have worked together and they have done a better job of coordinating their efforts since then. But at that start, It was a very confusing investigation and not particularly well handled. It's also important to note that there's nothing in the forensics, according to law enforcement, that actually links these four double homicides. The basic circumstances are similar. We have couples, cars, kind of isolated 
rural locations, lover's lane type situations. And there's a sense, kind of a through line, that it feels like someone is rolling up on these couples while they're stopped. And they may be engaged in romantic or sexual behavior or smoking a joint or listening to music or whatever. You know, these are all young people doing young people stuff. And someone seems to roll up on them and assume control of the couples. And then what we have is a situation where a lesbian couple, my sister and her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, are murdered, followed by... Even to call them a couple is a bit of a stretch, and I'm not implying any criticism here. But the, the second couple is a couple that met that day. So we're not talking about a serious couple at all. 14-year-old Robin Edwards and uh, 21-year-old David Nobling were found almost exactly a year after Kathy and Becky were killed. And then the following April, so we just had the 35th anniversary today, I saw that. On the day we recorded this podcast of um, Keith Call and Cassandra Haley, who went by Sandy. And they're not a serious couple either. They're on a first date. They had met at Christopher Newport University in school and were out on a first date and disappeared and were never found. And then interestingly, Keith's Toyota Celica is found abandoned along the Colonial Parkway at a site that's remarkably similar to the place where my sister Kathy's car was found a year and a half prior. So technically, Keith and Sandy are missing persons. Right. But they've been gone for 35 years. So I think the sad truth is they're probably dead. And then finally, what is known as the Colonial Parkway murders wraps up with another pair who also aren't a serious couple. This is Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer. They went missing Labor Day weekend 1989 along Interstate 64, which is the only real highway in any of this. All the other roads are kind of secondary roads. The two of them are really traveling companions. She is actually dating his brother. And so they're traveling back from their homes, which are near Richmond, back to Virginia Beach. And there's some odd circumstances there as well. Their bodies aren't found for six weeks. They're found side by side in a hunting area off Interstate 64, and his car is found abandoned, headed in the wrong direction. That's right. I remember that. This is a divided highway, and so if they had stopped on the way down there, to Virginia Beach, their car would have been heading eastbound. And yet his car is found the next day, abandoned in the westbound rest stop. They're sort of mirror images with a divided highway in between. And then six weeks later or so, about a mile as the crow flies, their bodies are found in this hunting area. And that appears to end what we call the Colonial Parkway murders. But you've got this strange sequence of couples and the method of killing actually varies from incident to incident. So there are some strange things about the case that where you think to yourself, maybe they're not all related. And that's certainly where I find myself. Although at the same time, FBI investigators 
have said to me face to face that couples homicides are rare, lovers lane homicides are rare, and that the idea that you would have four double homicides within a fairly compact area over a three-year time frame, they just said statistically it would be a complete anomaly for there to be four separate incidents and not have some sort of relationship. Sure. That makes total sense. Bill, if they're not related, if it wasn't the same perpetrator or perpetrators, do you think that maybe it was a copycat of some kind? Well, I want to be fair. I've had an opportunity to meet so many amazing FBI investigators, profilers. We were talking about Jim Clemente and Laura Richards Mm -hmm. and many, many others. There's some other possibilities, including copycat or someone trying to position their homicide, if you will, as part of the Colonial Parkway murders to disguise their original intent. I'm of the opinion that I believe that some of the Colonial Parkway murders are probably committed by the same offender or offenders. I think at least one of the four double homicides will fall off the table when this case is solved. And I really do feel that this case will be solved. So how has the communication been through the years between law enforcement and your family? Because this is something that comes up with pretty much every case me and George has worked is the lack of communication, basically, the unwillingness to share information or the unwillingness to even share with an outside agency or an outside expert. What has you and your family's experience been through the years with law enforcement on your sister's case? I would say somewhere between terrible and you've got to be kidding. (laughs) Shouldn't be funny, but the way you phrased it is sort of funny. It's pretty bad. We also find that if we don't laugh occasionally, we'll... Sure, you'll go crazy. ...jump out a window or something. Yeah, exactly. It's been horrible. Uh It really has been. Now, since 2009, when a story broke in Virginia media that the FBI had lost control of 78 highly graphic crime scene photos, and then I got much more involved in the case, and I decided to step into the case in a public way, which I'd never done before, and reach out to the other Colonial Parkway murders families, which we had never done before. And we began working together to build pressure on the FBI and the Virginia State Police, the two agencies responsible for investigating these murders. Until we began working together, I would say the communication was pretty atrocious. I remember asking my father, who since passed away, back in 2009, I had a conference call with my older brother, Richard, my younger brother, Jack, myself, and my dad. My mom had passed on, and of course, we'd lost Kathy. And I had said to my brothers and father that I wanted to get much more involved in the case, but I would only move forward if I had their permission to do so. In other words, if the four Thomas men were not on the same page, I wasn't going to do it. And I said, I'd like to reverse roles with dad because he had been the liaison to the FBI for many years. And at that point, we're talking 23 years. I asked my dad, when was the last time you heard from the FBI? And this is at the 23-year mark. And he said, long, long pause. He's a very thoughtful college professor and former naval officer. He said, 15 years? 
Wow. So he hadn't heard from anybody in 15 years. That's unacceptable in my book. That's outrageous. I know this is something we wanted to talk about today. If you don't kick up a fuss and if you don't keep asking questions and calling your investigator and talking to the media, nothing happens. Trust me, nothing is happening in your loved one's investigation. All those cliches my mom used to say about squeaky wheels and getting the grease and all that stuff, as usual, my mom was right. You have to keep asking questions. You have to keep kicking up a fuss. And a lot of what I've done over the last 14 years, and I don't mean just me personally, I mean all of us together, has been to keep kicking up a fuss. Bill, since I'm in the media, that's a question that I get asked a lot is why do we try to apply so much public pressure through media platforms, podcasting, whatever? How important in your sister's case has it been to use these different platforms to try to apply pressure? And I mean all of it, TV, newspaper, radio, podcast, whatever platform you guys use. George, I can't tell you how critical it is. Without the media, we're nowhere. And someone said to me last night in talking to me about the case, they said, you realize that if you guys hadn't kicked up a fuss, you'd be nowhere. The coldest of the cold. And as Jen said a moment ago, we're talking 250, now 280,000 cold cases. You have to get in there and you have to fight for resources. American law enforcement is actually terribly underfunded. Mm -hmm. They're spending money in all the wrong areas. Our cold case number, our unsolved, keeps growing. When I was a kid, the solve rate was, as you both know, around 90%. And now, despite the fact that we all think things are so much more advanced, that close has dropped from 90 plus percent to 65, 66%. That means there's a damn good chance if you kill somebody tonight that you're going to get away with it. There's certainly like a 30 to 40% chance you're going to get away with murder. Yep. So for family members like mine and for any number of people, including the people that loved and cared for Linda Malcolm, they have to continue fighting. And I use that word fighting for time, attention, and resources. Did you also experience this terrible phenomenon or whatever you want to call it, where your family would try to get an update and then they refused saying, oh, it's an open and active case, so we can't share anything with you. Did you experience that whole thing too? The FBI did that to us today. Wow. Because today's the 35th anniversary yes. of Keith calling Cassandra Haley's disappearance. That's an FBI case because it happened on the Colonial Parkway. And they released a statement saying they can't really add anything to the conversation. And they say this kind of stuff to us all the time. It's a very one-way conversation. The FBI pumps me for information every time they talk to me because, as you probably figure, sure. I really put myself out there and we talk a lot. And we use the Mind Over Murder platform and many others to get people to talk about the Colonial Parkway murders because we know the more people that talk about a case, for sure, the more chances are that someone's going to remember something that they might not have thought was important back in the day that could be important now. And then, of course, as you both know from your work, 
people's lives change, relationships change, jobs change, people get married, divorced, you name it. And so loyalties and silences that might have been set in one way are completely different. Yes. And that could happen in the Malcolm case as well. Yes. Ex-spouses can be very helpful. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we're going through a real interesting time with the Colonial Parkway murders. We're actually finding the children of potential persons involved are coming forward to us. These people are fully a generation younger. They weren't even alive at the time of the Colonial Parkway murders. And they're actually coming forward with new information saying, I think my father, my grandfather, my uncle was involved. How interesting. In these cases. Mm -hmm. And I'm dutifully gathering the information and getting it into the FBI. It's been very, very interesting. We've had new evidence and new information come forward within the last year in the Colonial Parkway murders as a result of these sons and daughters and stepchildren and the ex-wives. We're mostly talking about probably male offenders here. And I have met some super interesting people who've got stories to tell. Now, ultimately, it's not going to be up to me as the brother of a murder victim to figure out whether that ties into something that the FBI or the Virginia State Police have. But if you can at least feed that information into your investigators, hopefully one of those leads will lead somewhere. It's just a shame that, especially in your case, you're so involved and you and Kristen, I know, have to get tons of leads, information, tips, whatnot, that they can't have you sign like an NDA so that you can see what they're looking at. Because from personal experience, and George knows, in the Rebecca Gould case, if we had just known the investigator was looking at a guy named William Miller, that would have changed everything we were doing because the guy was in our Facebook group and communicating with me. But it wasn't until the end, a few weeks before his arrest, that we found out they were looking at him. And it's like, man, why wouldn't you use us to exploit this opportunity? Well, especially the two of you with the incredible backgrounds that you each bring to the table, for them not to at least tell you this guy's a potential suspect because your aha moment might have come weeks or months earlier. For sure. I remember when you told me the story and I read the story, I just about fell out of my chair. Here's this guy participating in your Facebook groups and you described him as active. He's really yes. yeah. pitching in. and Yeah, he was active. What he was really doing, of course, is following the conversation. He wanted to find out if you all and your supporters had figured out what had happened to Rebecca. Yes. Yeah, Bill, when he confessed, he said that he hated my guts. <laughs> <laughs> but George, that's a compliment, man. Oh, I know. I know. I told him, wear that badge with honor. <laughs> yeah, really. You know, a killer hates your guts. Well, that means the two of you were doing your job. And, you know, you struck me as such a likable guy. I really had a hard time hating your guts. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Bill, I'm kind of an acquired taste. You either love me or hate me. There's really no in between. <laughs> I don't think Mr. Miller is one of your biggest fans. No. No, he's not. Nope. <laughs> Let me just climb up on my soapbox for one second. Go for it. I would remind our friends in law enforcement that for people like me, we're not looking just for punishment 
if anything, I would say my family are looking for answers. We want to know what happened. Now, would I be thrilled to solve this case and help law enforcement move forward with a successful prosecution? Of course I would. So having your sister be the victim of an unsolved case through all these years, what have been some of the best resources for you? Or how have you coped? Or what lessons learned do you have that we could pass on to other victims, family members that are in this exact same position? Because there's so many. I don't want to speak in cliches, but I think this is important. It is really important to try to find some balance in your life. We've all got to try to find joy. And I think that can be really, really difficult. There's so many places, so many tripwires surrounding us, whether it's anesthetizing yourself with drugs and alcohol or any number of other things that are really not helping you manage your heartbreak. Notice I didn't say get over because this isn't the kind of thing you get over. No. I think it's one of those things where you just have to try as best you can to find your way through it. It is such a unique and terrible experience to lose a loved one in this way. It's very wrenching and it provides a mark where... There's the before and there's the after and nothing ever is going to be the same. I've said this in interviews before. It's like having your own private Mm 9-11 or something like that where it marks you with everything that was before and everything that was after. For years, I didn't talk about Kathy's death and I kind of divided the world into those people that knew Kathy Thomas, who was an amazing person, and everybody else in the entire world who was never going to know this amazing person that was our younger sister. And I realized it was kind of a private club that was no longer accepting members. So except for talking with people that knew Kathy, my family, her friends, classmates from the Naval Academy, folks like that, I didn't really discuss Kathy. And then I only made the decision after 2009 to start to go public with this. And now (laughs) it's interesting. I hadn't thought about this until this moment, but I know a ton of people that have love and admiration for my sister that have never even met her. For sure. Mm -hmm. Now, she would totally deserve this because she was an amazing person. But I never really thought about it until you just asked me that question. It's interesting, you know, like Kristen Dilley or our FBI agent. Yes. And so many other people talk about Kathy as if they knew her in the most positive and admiring ways. Now, Kathy would be completely embarrassed, but I'm thrilled because in some ways her legacy lives on. I was just going to say it keeps the positive memories alive. Yeah, it does. Do you ever find yourself... Or catching yourself becoming obsessed and you have to literally force yourself to step back and like take a break or take a vacation. Because <laughs> you're in this true crime genre day in and day out. I'm just curious if you ever get overwhelmed or it becomes too much sometimes. Yes, Pamela, my partner would certainly say that. And my family became very concerned a number of years ago and obsessed and stuck and going too far. Those were expressions that they've used. Interestingly, my family's kind of come around because they've realized that 
you know, all this work that you all have done, and I don't just mean me, I mean everybody, they've realized that a lot of good has come out of it and that they've seen advances in these cases and resources put back into the cases. It's not everything we want and that we still want and need more to solve the Colonial Parkway murders. But interestingly, my brothers, who I'm very close with, they've really come around. They understand it now. Whereas before, I think they thought I was nuts. <laughs> well, and I like to think that even though your sister's not with us anymore, she's had a valuable impact on many other people's lives through you. Because you wouldn't probably be in this space if your sister hadn't lost her life in this way. But I think you've turned it on a positive aspect to help others and other victims and their families. Well, thank you. It's my intention when we solve the Colonial Parkway murders, note the optimism, Yes. to pivot to this larger issue of what are we going to do as a country to help solve 280,000 cold case homicides? Amen. (laughs) And as you've heard me say, I think this should be a national scandal that we've allowed all of these murders to go unsolved. Yes. I agree. And it's unfortunate because there's so many people out there who may not have a badge and a gun, like the three of us, but we have skill sets that absolutely can contribute and help get forward progress in a case. And yet, Mm, so many agencies are still so resistant to it. Not all, because we've got a really good situation going on with our partner team in West Virginia, where the detective works side by side with them, meets over Zoom all the time, gave them the whole case file, everything. I love hearing that. We're trying to make that like the example, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the exception. Yeah, very much so. I think that a lot of police agencies, they deal with people in the public all the time who don't know the law Mm -hmm. or laws. They don't know their rights. And so they deal with people in this space all the time and they'll just say something and make something up. Right. Police chiefs and special agents in charge and folks like that, they're the ones that stand up in the front of the room and yeah, it's not us asking all the glory. Yeah, I mean, when Dateline in 2020 and all those shows come calling, uh-huh. they get the lion's share of the attention and credit and everything. Yeah, yeah, you know, it doesn't even go to the detective, and it's certainly not going to go to the two of you, which is fine. When a crime is committed, clues live within digital devices. That's digital forensics. Learn how to process and analyze that data by earning a Bachelor's of Science in Digital Forensics from American Military University. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more about AMU's Digital Forensics degree by visiting amuonline.com forensics. One thing that I was going to ask you, Bill, as far as like if you were going to talk or mentor someone who is in the same position you were in 15 or so years ago when you started down this path for your sister, what would be some pieces of advice that you would give them as far as what should they focus on? What should they do? Because obviously, like you said, they hadn't talked to your dad in more than a decade when you came into this. And You had to start that whole process fresh, raw. There's no handbook for this, obviously. So what would you say to them? I actually, Kristen and I are talking about writing a handbook because this is so unique. I hope that not very many people would need the handbook, but we've actually talked about writing a handbook or at least a portion of a book would be about doing this exact thing and then hopefully learning from some of the mistakes that we've made. What would be my advice? Well, I think 
Alliances are incredibly important. I think that you have to look for partnerships wherever you can find them. I usually try to evaluate what is someone's agenda in moving this case forward. If we overlap at like the 60 or 70% level, I will usually try to find a way to partner with them. So let me give you some concrete examples. For instance, a reporter wants to do a story that's going to attract readers and get people talking. There's enough overlap there. Now, if so-and-so reporter wants to win a journalism prize, you should be okay with that. And if they want to interview you, provided you're not pushed past your comfort level, try to get out there. I've suggested to other families to appoint a spokesperson maybe sometimes like one step removed than the people that are like at the center of this from an emotional perspective that can be very, very difficult. And there might be people within a family, an aunt, an uncle, someone like that, that might have a little bit more maturity is kind of what I mean, because it's really, really difficult. These are hard things to do, to advocate, to fight, to push. I've used that word fight three or four times in this conversation. And I use it advisedly because that actually is what this is. You need to get out there. You need to try to build alliances with your law enforcement agencies, but that can be difficult because they don't typically welcome it. When you mentioned the West Virginia case and an investigator who sees the value in teamwork, and in working with the families and other people who will bring resources to the conversation. But that's rare. Oh, for sure. If you're a family member or a friend, you've got to convince law enforcement that you mean business and that you're going to try to be as serious and professional as possible. The media partnerships are absolutely critical and you should be out there as much as you can. I also think it's a matter of listening and learning and Try to finish every conversation with, who else can I talk to? Yes. And I'm not any kind of genius. I'm just a stubborn Irishman (laughs) with a thick head from Boston who's too dumb to know when to quit. But I am smart enough to ask at the end of every conversation, who else should I talk to? That's sort of one of our mottos. I'm always saying the more brains thinking about a case, the better. Oh, absolutely. That's something we've totally learned through these crowdsourcing techniques we use is everybody has something to offer. You don't have to be former law enforcement or current law enforcement or anything like that. So it's been fantastic to just get all these different points of view and different analysis. And then through that process, we've got these experts that have come out to help us and they're part of our team now. And I think it's been overall a very positive experience. But of course, we learn as we go. And like you said, one thing we learn is who else can we talk to? What other area of expertise would be helpful? You know, and we use local residents, too, because we take cases in places where we don't live. Right. So we've learned the value of making those connections with local residents and people who knew the victim. And a lot of times they do some of our groundwork for us. Yeah, that's how Kristen Dilley and I connected, my podcast partner. She reached out to me because she wanted to interview me for a book that she was writing, which I hope she finishes at some point. She was interviewing survivors of violent crime of this type, and she was calling it Battle Scars. And she asked if she could interview me, and I did some background research on her to make certain she was legit, and she was. And then we had a fantastic interview. But 
she and I kind of clicked. And I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and the Colonial Parkway murders happened all the way across the country in Virginia. But here's Kristen Dilley, who's from Williamsburg. She grew up there. She grew up with the Colonial Parkway murders. I've never even lived in Virginia. And she remembered when the cases took place. And I found over time that she could provide me with all kinds of just insight, like where certain places were. Because people, in talking about the case, they would assume that I knew like the geography and things like that. And I never lived there. The Navy brought my sister Kathy to the Norfolk, Virginia area. And so to have Kristen there, she ended up being a phenomenal set of boots on the ground. If I said, hey, would you mind going to such and such a place and taking pictures? And she'd say, sure. And then I began to realize, wow, not only is she willing to help in any way that she can, she's super smart and then very dedicated in her relationship, if you will, with Kathy and Becky grew and it's turned out to be this phenomenal partnership. Now, I had no way of knowing that when we first met, it must be eight years ago or more, but you never know where help is going to come from and you want to try to be open to it. Now, I do remind people that sometimes someone will come in with an agenda that isn't healthy or isn't good for you or your case But if you vet people carefully and, you know, sort of take them out for a little bit of a test drive, do a little research, that kind of thing, you'll find that there often are people that really would like to help in some way. Yes, absolutely. Our conversation turned to an issue that often gets brought up by law enforcement when refusing to release any information to family members on their loved ones' cases that doing so might jeopardize their investigation and any chance of achieving a conviction. And I know I can be a handful. I'll acknowledge all of that. But I can't be the worst you've ever run into. Well, no. And for them to think that you would do something to jeopardize your sister's case, no family member is going to do that. No. We had the same issue with Linda Malcolm's siblings getting the autopsy. Part of the argument was like, well, it could jeopardize the case. You guys might publicize it. Oh, please. They're like, we would never. First of all. Who's going to run their sister's autopsy and who's going to put it up? Yeah, nobody wants that out there about their loved one. Well, yeah, Bill, the other part is that it hasn't been solved in 15 years. So holding it doesn't seem to have worked. So maybe you should try something else. Yeah, but you're being awfully logical there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad we did get it because even today, George, I don't know if you've watched yet, but our arson expert, Alan, did some experiments with a dummy at his fire academy trying to replicate Linda's wounds. Oh, yeah. Well, he couldn't do that without looking at the autopsy report. Exactly. And my sketch of all of her injuries, we need to have that to understand what happened. But then that allows your expert then to use that information. And he may be able to point something out. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know the circumstances with Linda's murder are very unique. But he may be able to tell you something which you could provide to investigators, but he can't do that if he doesn't have the basic facts of how her body was presented. And I know that we've got stab wounds and we've got burns and this fire. There's a lot going on there. But here's an expert who's willing to take the time. But if you gave him a little bit of info, 
his discussion of the case becomes that much more informed. Yes, and we do provide all of our experts interviews and analysis recordings. Anything they come up with, we give it immediately over to the investigating authority because most police departments in our country, they don't have an arson expert on staff. They don't have a knife expert. No, no. But we can provide them that new analysis free of charge Yeah, and hope that it helps them. Well, you're bringing resources. Mm-hmm. Then I'm not slagging a small town police force. Of course, they're not going to have the resources. But the two of you and your allies bring a lot to the table. If an investigator can see their way clear to moving past pride and institutional concerns and just say, you know, I might want to hear these people out because they might be able to tell me something that could help me move this case forward. Exactly. And plus people reach out to us. I know you've had the same experience. People reach out to us that don't want to talk to law enforcement. Yep. But we can pass the information on. So that's just another resource that we bring them. And I've also been able to convince people over time to talk with law enforcement I vouched for our FBI agent, who's a tremendous agent and treats people with a great deal of respect. And and people have come around. I get it. And I've been able to convince criminals and other folks that are very standoffish with law enforcement to provide DNA samples, to allow themselves to be interviewed. They might not necessarily be suspects, but someone that's been on the other side of the law for a long time, they just have this tremendous distrust of cops. I get it. I beg them, please, this would mean a lot to me if you would consider talking to this person. I was on the phone with a longtime retired investigator and I wasn't sure she was going to be willing to talk with a particular person I wanted them to. And over the weekend, she said yes. That's fantastic. So people do come around. I'm always looking for those alliances and those relationships and building areas where we can work together. Yes. You have an increased level of passion due to your sister losing her life in this way, but me and George are extremely passionate about what we do Mm -hmm. as well. And I think it's going to take alliances, like people like us coming together to affect some change in this country and start finding new ways to tackle some of these cold cases. Oh, I think so. Because like George just said, the old ways aren't working and the number just keeps going up every year. Mm -hmm. So when we talked before a few weeks ago, we all had a Zoom and part of our conversation, of course, was on Linda Malcolm's case. And Bill, you and Kristen cover lots of different cases on your podcast. And I thought you had some interesting ideas about Linda's when we talked about it. Once I dug into the autopsy and did my own sketch of her injuries... It actually came to 24 stab wounds or slashes on the front and back of her body. And to me, there's a high level of overkill, which means the killer delivered way more injuries to her than was necessary to kill her. Right. How does her case compare with others you've covered? What strikes you about it? Well, a couple of things. This idea of overkill is definitely part of the Colonial Parkway murders because in Kathy and Becky's attack... There's a tremendous amount of overkill as well. Kathy and Becky were strangled with rope, likely from behind, and then their throats were cut from beyond ear to ear. Kathy was essentially decapitated. And then there was a clumsy attempt, my word, to set the car on fire with diesel fuel. And those investigators have used the expression overkill as well. When I've covered other cases and read about other cases, 
all these additional stab wounds, which are far beyond what would be required to kill Linda, it just strikes me as so incredibly personal. And there's so much rage and anger directed at her. And she's a relatively small person, what, 5'3", 105 pounds. I'm assuming for a second that her assailant is male. But she wouldn't require that much physical strength if the attacker is a man who would be of somewhat larger stature. But 24 stab wounds just seems completely beyond what would be required to end her life. Here we are again with setting the apartment on fire, Mm -hmm. the attempt to set Kathy's car on fire. I don't know if that person 15 years ago would have had the forensic knowledge that setting fire to the apartment and her body would obscure, maybe even destroy important clues, DNA and other evidence. But it all seems very deliberate and there's just such a high level of rage and anger directed at her. Those things seem extremely unusual. I couldn't also help but ask about her naval service. And I know that in some of the work that you guys have done, you've highlighted some changes in her life that were kind of disturbing the people she was hanging out with, quitting her job, those kind of things. I felt like there was a lot of stuff going on. And I'm disappointed that they haven't been able to identify a strong, smaller group of suspects over 15 years. We do have communication with the detective. She's actually very willing to collaborate. From what I can tell, they have narrowed down the list of suspects. Bill and his podcast co-host and investigative partner, Kristen Dilley, have experienced the same challenges George and I have in trying to bring outside assistance and resources to various unsolved cases and police departments. The concept of holdback was discussed among us. Holdback refers to details of a case that only a killer could know and which police generally keep confidential in order to assist them during an interrogation of a potential killer. Holdback is often debated due to the delicate balance between the strategy of providing information to the public and needing to protect certain details in order to safeguard against false confessions. They want information that can prove definitively that the killer or killers were there and there are things they want that individual to know. I understand that, but you don't need to hold back everything. No, because there's people out there that that detail is going to strike something with them or jog a memory or whatnot. Or again, like an expert might come out of the woodwork. Oh, I know what that means, you know? Right. We released on our episode, which featured Jeff, the knife guy. Mm. We did release that Linda was completely nude because we felt like that's going to spark some good discussion and someone else probably going to come up with some good ideas that we wouldn't be able to think about. Right. The nude thing can have a sexual component. It can also be about... Maybe she slept in the nude or maybe it's designed to degrade or control. I mean, there could be a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. Yes. And something we learned. So both Jeff, the knife expert, and Alan, our arson expert, neither one of them in their careers have worked a case of a stabbing or arson where the victim was completely nude. Interesting. I didn't realize how rare it was. (laughs) Oh, that is rare. I'm very struck by this intersection of knife wounds and the victim being nude. Wow. I wonder what a profiler would make of that. You know, I'm not an expert, but it 
seems like based on what your experts are telling you, it's an unusual intersection. Yes. What else do we want to talk about, if anything? Those were the main things. I really appreciate your perspective being in this terrible position of having a family member murdered. But I think your insight, your experiences are so helpful to others who just have had, well, you experienced it too, no support, no communication. So many families go through that. And so that's why we really wanted you to detail your experiences and like you said what has helped you and trying to find joy trying to find positivity Mm -hmm. in a life where you have this big black cloud that's never going to be gone and you have this void that can never be filled and i don't think people realize how common that experience is as a matter of fact i would say more people in our situation find their relationship with law enforcement to be like what we talked about today versus, oh, my investigator was amazing and was very forthcoming with information. I'm not saying it's never happened, but I don't think it happens a lot. Yeah. I had a conversation with Kelsey German, you know, the sister of Libby German. Libby German and her best friend, Abigail Williams, were killed together in a remote hiking area in Delphi, Indiana in 2017. Police recently made an arrest in the case, but for years, they refused to release hardly any information. Kelsey's wonderful. Yeah, she's a real nice girl. She was like, they're not telling us anything. Right. And she wasn't trying to push them. And I was like, at some point, Kelsey, you're going to have to start pushing them. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know that being silent about every detail, including how they died, was that beneficial. That case didn't need to drag on. No. For the years that it did. And I thought they botched that case almost from the beginning. And remember, my real background is in marketing, communications, public relations, all that stuff. I was greatly invested in the Delphi case because I had met Kelsey. We actually were on a podcast together. One of the things I said to Kelsey was, I don't want you to be me 30 years from now. No kidding. Still talking about your sister's unsolved murder case. And I'm literally old enough to be Kelsey's dad. And I felt a real kinship with her because she's an amazing young woman and they've been through a lot and I'd met the family. But I I remember thinking, you guys are not pushing law enforcement hard enough. I hope they can get to a conviction. I think they can. But there's no way that fool should have literally been sitting under their noses at CVS, a block away from the police station, for all those years. And when I watched those press conferences, I was like, what in the hell? I kept looking at the videotape saying, release more of the videotape. Yes. You can strip the audio out of it if you need to. Release more of the video. Yeah. Show me more of this guy. It's ridiculous. And then the two sketches look crazy different. Are we supposed to be looking at the sketch that makes him look older or the sketch that makes him look younger? I didn't understand that at all. I don't know which one's right, but at least give us some direction. Those press conferences were so confusing. Completely agree. You voiced all all the stuff that was in my head through the years. I'm very fond of of Kelsey. I thought of them actually a few minutes ago, Jennifer, when you said release more. Mm -hmm. That case popped into my head because I thought, 
come on, more videos, a little bit more detail about how the girls died. I mean, come on. I think a few seconds of video would have been enough. Someone would have recognized him, but we just didn't have enough. Yeah. A split second, it's like, that is not enough, especially when he's walking on that weird rickety old bridge. On the trestle. And you can't walk normal on it, so you can't see his normal gait and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that would have attracted a lot more attention mm -hmm. if they'd said, okay, today we're going to release more video or we're going to release yes. more details about how the girls died. Look, people in the community really wanted to help. I think for a lot of law enforcement agencies, there's an inherent distrust of the public. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of examples, particularly with cold cases, they're making a gigantic mistake. Yeah. Because as you were both saying earlier, Put some stuff out there because you never know. This might trigger a memory. Yeah. In Rebecca's case, Bill, the state police said, because I had figured out a lot of stuff in their case file through the years. People had leaked stuff to me. Yeah. Yep. And I would publicly release it. And they literally told people that there was no way they could ever solve that case because of me. <laughs> yeah, it's George's fault. <laughs> It's me. I'm the problem. Yeah. Well, then they had a detective on the case who had a false theory of the case for 15 years, and I repeatedly told him his theory was false. And it made no sense. Well, then they assigned a new detective and then blammo in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Eight months later, he arrests a guy who lives halfway across the world and the guy confesses to the murder. And it, it was a bunch of BS and nonsense because like you're talking about the, the video. There is nothing about that. That if you bring a guy in that you think is a suspect, what could he say about a video that he didn't even know existed? Yeah. <laughs> right. This holdback thing, he can tell us something only the killer would know. Well, it had nothing to do with it. That at some point, we're going to have to have a national conversation about what we want our police to be. Mm -hmm. Because we live in a quasi-police state now. There's no governmental entity, in our world at least, that gets held to account for the work they do. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm totally with you. This has been a fantastic conversation. You've given us so much great insight on so many different topics, and we just appreciate you. Well, keep me posted on what's going on with the case. Oh, we will. And if I can throw my two cents in. Anytime. Keep in touch, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Thank you again for all your expertise and information. We love it. Sure. All right. Talk soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our conversation with Bill had provided us with a much better understanding of the perspective of family members of homicide victims and the long-term trauma they endure. He is a great example of a victim advocate. Listeners can find out much more about Bill's experiences and contributions to the world of cold cases by listening to his podcast, Mind Over Murder, and joining he and Kristen Dilley's Facebook page titled Colonial Parkway Murders. next time on Break the Case. And I'm looking forward to seeing who has done this to my sister. And I'm seeing them in court, putting my face in their face, letting them know how we feel about what they've done to our family and our dear friends. When a killer takes someone's life, they don't realize it's not just one person's life that they're taking. You guys are secondary victims to this horrific crime. It literally changed all of your lives for the worse in many ways. After spending 10 years hounding the Port Orchard Police Department and finally having no faith in giving up. I honestly thought we would probably never find out. After meeting with the police department the other day, I feel confident now that they are really trying to work on it hard. I want people to know if you call them, 
they may say we don't have any comment about it right now because we talked to the chief about it, but they did want this out. They are actively working leads in this case this afternoon. It is happening right now. And they brought in at least three investigators from outside agencies. I feel very satisfied right now that the case is basically being worked as hard as a department can work it. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leishan Kranick, Andy Crow, and Kristen Kretzler with support from Lisa Tannis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Subscribe to Break the Case on iHeartRadio, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.